This is Social Matters with Mutiny Radio. Big up to the number one station, the ruling nation. Give it to me every time. Ah! My name is Breakfast, and I'm running for Chancellor of the United States of America. For too long, we have gone without a Chancellor who is willing to take bold leaps of faith and logic to create new possibilities for our great, big, fat nation. As your Chancellor, I will balance the budget on the head of a pin, give entertaining speeches, have scandalous affairs, write strongly worded letters to unpopular foreign leaders, look good on camera, end all hunger, crime, abuse, war, disease, disasters, sadness, depression, oppression, repression, suppression, transgression, obsession, expression, impression, regression, and digression by signing pieces of paper that express my disapproval of such things. And invest in an American flag pin to be worn prominently on my stylish jackets. It's time to work together to take the country back from us and return it to ourselves. It's time to turn this country around and drive it into opposing traffic. It's time to take a chance on the Chancellor. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts?
At the dawn of the 20th century, America was a country full of promise and hope for many. Black Americans faced a different reality, a nation separate and unequal. Yet their hope persisted. Pained by inequality, but inspired by resilience, writer and civil rights activist James Weldon Johnson put pen to paper. His words would become a unifying call, a hope for a brighter tomorrow, a timeless exhortation to lift every voice and sing. Lift every voice and sing till earth and heaven
forces that want to take us back to another place. We don't want to go back. We want to go forward.
quieren morir en Irak, latinos. Pero que no nos quieren aquí, dicen Chihuahua. ¿Cómo está la cosa? Vamos a ver. Dicen que los gringos son unos hombres muy valientes, por eso mandan latinos primerito para el frente. Y los ricos se presentan como gente muy patriota, por eso la clase obrera está en Irak calzando botas. Pero a mí no me crean lo que les digo, ahí tienen la tele. Como testigo, pero a mí no me crean lo que les digo. Ahí tienen la tele como testigo. Por allá andan presumiendo sus aviones invisibles, que sus bombas solo matan a soldados y a civiles. Ay, Chihuahua, ¿cómo está eso? También dicen que sus bombas no se han dirigido mal, han caído en edificios y uno que otro hospital. Pero a mí no me crean lo que les digo, ahí tienen la tele como testigo. Pero a mí no me crean lo que les digo, ahí tienen la tele como testigo y cuentan que los Hussein son unos hombres muy matones pero como van las cosas a Bush no le llegan ni a los talones otros dicen que la ONU se opuso a la invasión no sabiendo esa señora que Bush era su patrón pero a mí no me crean lo que les digo Ahí tienen la tele como testigo Pero a mí no me crean lo que les digo Ahí tienen la tele como testigo Ay, ay, ay CNN, Fox News, Univision, todos dicen y dicen, y si lo dicen, por algo lo dicen. Pero a la hora de la hora no sé ni lo que dicen. Solo que otros dicen que esta guerra es ilegal, pero por nosotros ser gabachos, eso no se ve tan mal. Soy jornalero, disque ilegal, pero qué suerte la mía, si me voy para Irak, Bush me da ciudadanía. En la tumba, en la tumba, ya con esta me despido de esta gran calamidad. Les deseo mucha suerte descubriendo la verdad. Pero a mí no me crean lo que les digo. Ahí tienen la tele como testigo. Pero a mí no me crean lo que les digo. Ahí tienen la tele. Como testigo la 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 Vámonos And good morning to you You are tuned to Mutiny Radio Lucky you Mutinyradio.fm And the name of the show is Labor and Love Radio Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. till noon. 
and uh, archived. Got quite a pile of archives now at the Union at the MutinyRadio.fm website. This is Labor and Love Radio, where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else got a dollar. Someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. <laughs> you don't have a seat at the table where you work, the negotiating table that is, you're on the menu. Someone is deciding when you're going to live and when you're going to work. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. It's only a waste of time. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. And when I say labor, I mean you. And as you'll see, they don't want you to have a union. They don't want you to think in terms of the working class. Because your work makes them rich. Good morning, everybody. And... I hope you had a good week and good work. We're going to talk today about Malcolm X. Malcolm X, one of the pivotal figures in uh, American history in the 20th century and beyond. We're going to talk about Lawrence Ferlinghetti, a man who always insisted he wasn't a beat poet. He was a working class poet. What's happening in Bessemer, Alabama that might affect you? We started out today with a set. Usually we have three songs. Today we had four. Lucky you. Fight the Power started us off. Fight the Power with with uh, Chuck D. Chuck D. And I want to get I want to get that one. Let's see. Fight the power. Public Enemy, Chuck D's band, uh, hip hop group. Then we had Lift Every Voice and Sing. Black National Anthem, sung by Alicia Keys, celebrating uh, Black History Year. Not just Black History Day or Black History Week or Black History Month. Black History, period. Then Fred Neal, a longtime favorite of mine, with his ballad about skipping over the ocean like a stone. Featured in the movie uh, Midnight Cowboy. And finally, <clears throat> a friend of mine, Francisco Herrera, with his Pero a mí no me creen, don't take my word for it, he's saying. That's what it said on the TV. Can't doubt that, huh? <laughs> of course not. Okay, so let's see here. 
We've got quite a show planned for you. We're going to talk about the National Labor Relations Board and what Joe Biden's done so far to change that body from its pro-employer history under you-know-who. Don't want to say his name any more than I have to. Um, Lawrence Ferlinghetti himself reading A Coney Island of the Mind. Then we'll read another one of his that we uh, usually feature almost every week. Pity the Nation. And then we've got uh, some work by a group called the Labor Radio Podcast Network, which is uh, a group of labor programmers like yours truly, the Labor Radio Podcast Network. In other words, people all over the country are having having labor shows and doing their their bit to make us all more aware of the labor movement, the folks who gave you the weekend, among other things. What's Danny Glover doing down in Bessemer, Alabama? How the labor COVID relief bill could save distressed union pensions. Funny how they distress the union pensions, huh? Hmm. Labor history in two, as we usually do. Radio labor. And news broke. With one of our favorite comedians. Francesca Fiorentini. So, start off with Minister Malcolm X. Um, this is a documentary that was produced in 2015. And afterwards, we're going to talk a little bit about a new set of evidence that's come out just recently. Uh, having to do with Malcolm X's murder. Here we go. And then there was X. Minister Malcolm X. We're going to see and hear from Eddie Conway, Angela Davis, before mentioned Danny Glover. This year we... The thing that I found in all of my travels was that uh, all of the Africans, not only the Africans, but the Asians and the Muslims, look upon us as their long-lost brothers. And America had actually tricked many of them uh, into uh, a hands-off policy by giving them the impression that she was honestly trying to do something to solve the problem. My argument over there was designed to prove that it is impossible for the United States government to solve the race problem. It's impossible. Are you prepared to work with some of the leaders of the other civil rights organizations? Certainly. Certainly. We will work with any uh, groups, organizations, or leaders in any way, as long as it's genuinely designed to get results. Salam alaikum. Mr. Moderator, 
our distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, our friends and, and our enemies. It's very sad that he was assassinated when he was because he was in the process of making um, amazing transformations. There's a worldwide revolution going on. It goes beyond Mississippi. It goes beyond Alabama. It goes beyond Harlem. Malcolm is overlooked in, 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 in that as one of the pantheons of, uh, of, of black liberation. What is it revolting against? The power structure. The American power structure? No. The French power structure? No. The English power structure? No. Then what power structure? An international Western power structure. Malcolm grew up in uh, a two-parent household, initially two-parent household in, in Nebraska, where his father was a, a preacher of sorts, working for the United Negro Improvement Association under Marcus Garvey um, uh, auspices. And he was... Um, uh, a powerful, fiery, strong father, husband, uh, and political leader. While Malcolm was in Harlem, he engaged in a lot of uh, petty criminal activities with his running buddy Shorty. Uh, when he went to Boston, they uh, created a burglary ring and they were robbing houses. And uh, he got caught at some point and went to prison for that. When he was released from the prison system, he became an active member of the Nation of Islam. Mr. Muhammad teaches us that uh, man is judged by his conscious behavior, and the conscious behavior collectively of the white race toward non-white people has been a, the type of behavior that is uh, practiced only by a devil or devils. So then, in essence, you feel that white men, per se, are devils? He teaches us that God told him that the white race is a race of devils. Well, it's just not the things we're used to down here. I mean, they come in and they sit down and we're not used to them sitting down beside us because I wasn't raised with them. I never have lived with them and I'm not going to start now. The Nation of Islam, for whatever its failings or shortcomings or flaws are or were, existed in a very hostile environment where the country's most, the world's most powerful intelligence apparatus began targeting this and affiliated groups uh, to destroy them. The messenger of the Lord of the world, the most honorable Elijah Muhammad, as I greet you. I want to show you, my people, the way out to your salvation. This problem is to be solved by God and the solution of the problem has been given to me. To come up within an organization like the Nation of Islam and then this, again, serendipitous, never-to-be-repeated mistake of the mainstream press giving him a platform, uh, Malcolm rose to a level of prominence in this country and around the world that, that I think a, a leader of that kind could never expect today. What is your real name? Malcolm. Malcolm X. Uh, is that your legal name? As far as I'm concerned, it's my legal name. Have you been to court to establish the I don't, I, I didn't have to go to court to be called Murphy or Jones or Smith. Excuse me for answering you this way. That's if all right. a Chinese person were to say his name was Patrick Murphy, uh, you would look at him like he's insane because uh, Murphy is an Irish name, uh, a European name, or the name that uh, has a Caucasian or, or a white background. And a yellow person, Chinese is a yellow man, 
and uh, he has nothing to do or no connection whatsoever with the name Murphy. I think people don't give Malcolm enough credit for the organizing that he did, even within the nation. He basically helped build that organization from the ground up, went to city after city, uh, inspiring people, getting people to organize, creating structures, uh, creating teams, uh, getting folks to be dedicated in terms of their lives to a given vision. We don't care what your religion is. We don't care what organization you belong to. We don't care how far in school you went or didn't go. We don't care what kind of job you have. We have to give you credit for shocking the white man by not letting him divide you and use you one against the other. There was this question that emerged within the nation of, well, he's getting a little too popular. He's making Elijah look bad. He's this, that, and the third. But what also has to be remembered is that the counterintelligence program of the FBI was encouraging this through their own letter writing campaigns and their own uh, 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 planting of agents within the Nation of Islam and elsewhere were encouraging a dissent, uh, a dissension rather, between Malcolm and Elijah Muhammad. President Kennedy, uh, I believe you call him a trickster? He has to be a trickster. Even if he's the president, that doesn't stop him from being a trickster if he's making tricks. Anytime a, 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 president, a man running, running for president tells Negroes uh, what he's going to do for them when he gets in office, and after he gets in office, he has time to do something for everybody else except the people that put him in office, he tricked the people who put him in office. The idea that Kennedy represented the new America, uh, the more tolerant America, or the more helpful America, the image that was promoted about Kennedy right there. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Malcolm's critique of Kennedy was that he didn't represent anything except the ruling elite. History proved that he was right. That same phenomenon reoccurred several years ago with President Obama. He has the time to take a stand against U.S. Steel, against Castro, against Khrushchev, against Laos and South Vietnam and all these other places all over the world. But when it comes to time to correcting the injustices that are being inflicted against Negroes in this country, Kennedy sits up there like Nero. He's fiddling while Birmingham is burning. You can never whip these boys if you don't keep you and them separate. I found that out in Birmingham. You've got to keep the white and the black separate. Well, this is certainly a shocking and frightening expression of the sickness of our society and the deep hatred that pervades so much of our society. And I think this reveals that we have in certain sections of our country uh, a barbaric expression people asking questions. Well, the Nation of Islam talks tough, but they're not on the front lines of any of these struggles here. Uh, we see students, we see CORE, we see eventually SNCC, we see SCLC, we see all these other mainstream civil rights organizations on the front line. They're getting beaten, they're getting arrested, and the Nation of Islam, with all its organization and strength, talks a big game, but nobody's directly engaging. Uh, and Malcolm started to raise certain questions. As long as they thought that uh, Martin Luther King had things control, under control in Birmingham. Kennedy didn't see fit to send any troops down there. As long as the dogs were biting little black babies and, bla and black women and black children, Kennedy 
never thought of sending any troops into Birmingham. It was only after the Negroes showed that they were fed up and they, that they were capable of uh, retaliating uh, against the injustices that were being afflicted, inflicted upon them by the whites that Kennedy called for the truth. It drew some stark lines about who was really working for the interests of black people, who was capitulating, uh, who was getting what deal in order to continue being black leadership, who was getting money even. President Kennedy has been the victim of an assassin's bullets in Dallas, Texas. It is not known as yet whether the president survived the attack against him. Immediately, a Secret Service man said he saw blood spurt from the president's head. He fell into the laps of Mrs. Kennedy, and Mrs. Kennedy shouted, oh, no. I remember the moment. I remember that day on, on, the, on November 22nd. I remember how it came over the loudspeaker, and how all of us who had, had opposed a position, a great deal of hope in Kennedy, we're overwhelmed. We just have a report from our correspondent, Dan, rather in Dallas, that he has confirmed that President Kennedy is dead. I've been silent for the past 90 days because of uh, some statements I made concerning the President of the United States, uh, which were distorted. They were distorted. And yes. And what did you say, Malcolm? Well, I said the same thing that everybody says, that uh, his assassination was the result of the climate of hate. But only, I, only, only I said the chickens came home to roost. This statement is from Messenger Elijah Muhammad, the leader of the Muslims in America. Uh, Minister Malcolm Shabazz addressing a public meeting did not speak for the Muslims when he made comments on the death of the president, John F. Kennedy. He was speaking for himself and not Muslims in general. And Minister Malcolm has been suspended from public speaking for the time being. The American apartheid, that's what he was saying, is that this is a response to all of the indignities and all of the brutality that you've delivered to black America. When Malcolm accepts the silencing, he accepts the punishment, he hears more and more about uh, his negative relationship and place within the nation. And these reports that Malcolm X has been marked for death, uh, you say, are spread by Malcolm X himself? That is his source of propaganda to stay in the press. He have no other means of reaching the press he doesn't have a program. He's trying to reduplicate something that has been tried over the years by other so-called Negro leaders. Learning of Elijah Muhammad's indiscretions hurt Malcolm X. I mean, Elijah had become a father figure. The Nation of Islam itself had become a family. As he would say later, you know, the people who he thought were being sent to kill him were people he met or trained or prepared to do that kind of work within the nation. Okay, let's take a little break. We've reached a point in uh, this history of Malcolm X where Malcolm has been censured <clears throat> because he made the comment that the chickens have come home to roost when uh, John F. Kennedy was killed. <clears throat> Meaning, of course, that the U.S. was indulging in violence all over the world as it had since World War II. And that violence had reached the country that started it, the country that was promulgating the violence. Um, of course, you know, everyone was horrified by that. They didn't even really think about what he meant. 
So for that reason, Elijah Muhammad uh, censured him. And uh, this is the point in Malcolm X's life where instead of always saying, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad always teaches us this or that, where uh, Malcolm began to speak for himself. And his voice was a more universal one. His voice was open to other organizations and other people who were sincere about dealing directly, militantly with the race problem in the United States. Okay, so let's continue on. developing a criminal organization. It, it, it was not a criminal organization at the outstart. It was an organization that had the power, the spiritual power, to reform the criminal. And, and this is what you have to understand. As long as that strong spiritual power was in the movement, it gave the, it gave the moral strength to the believer that would enable him to rise above all his negative tendencies. I know. Because I, I, I went into the movement with more negative tendencies than anybody in the movement. Malcolm didn't leave the nation. The nation left Malcolm. The, the nation told Malcolm, you were out. And Malcolm tried to sort of come back in the nation and figure out ways in terms of his relationship with Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay at the time, to bring him in and try to get back into the nation. It was only as after many attempts that he realized that his status within the nation was never going to be, re never going to be reinstated. I, for one, disassociate myself from the movement completely, and I dedicate myself to the organizing of black people into a group that are interested in doing things constructive, not for just one religious segment of the community, but for the entire black community. The efforts to silence him began very soon after he announced his break. The organization of Afro-American unity shall include all people of African descent in the Western Hemisphere. In essence, what it is saying, instead of you and me running around here seeking allies in our struggle for freedom, in the Irish neighborhood or the Jewish neighborhood or the Italian neighborhood, we need to, we need to seek some allies among people who look something like we do. All through the last year, uh, Elijah Muhammad was chafing at the inability of his people, the Fruit of Islam, the sort of paramilitary uh, wing of the, uh, of the Nation of Islam, uh, their inability to kill Malcolm. Today I'm speaking for myself. Formerly I spoke for Elijah Muhammad. And everything I said was, Elijah Muhammad teaches us thus and so. I'm speaking now from what I think, from what I have seen, from what I have analyzed and, and the conclusions that I have reached. The last meeting I had with him, he said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm no longer a black nationalist. So I said, well, what do you call yourself? He says, I'm an internationalist. Malcolm, just Are to prepare to go into the United Nations at this point and ask that charges be brought against the United States for its treatment of American Negroes? Oh, yes. Uh, oh, yeah, please. I think you're right in my opinion. The audience will have to be quiet. <laughs> uh, yes, the, as I pointed out when I was in, during my traveling, that nations look, African nations and Asian nations and Latin American nations look very hypocritical when they stand up in the United Nations condemning the racist practices of South Africa 
and that which is practiced by Portugal and Angola, and saying nothing in the UN about the racist practices uh, that are, that are uh, manifest every day against Negroes in this society. Later on in, in those last months, when he made his, his other trips to Africa, and that he'd begun to realize that in terms of how, how we in this country uh, describe black or uh, describe black uh, nationalism uh, was not, uh, did not fly very well. It's not a case of being good and bad, good or bad blacks and whites. It's a case of being good or bad human beings. He's exposed uh, to, to political leadership, radical political leadership all over the world. He does have to raise these questions, well, if they're white, and at least what we would call white, and leading uh, North African revolutionaries and they're, and they're Muslims, we can't just say that they're all blue-eyed devils. Do you feel that, that your message, uh, apparent message of love that you brought back from Islam is, is the real reason they're <laughs> after you, because you're not hating as hard as they want you to? Well, I never did hate anybody hard. Uh, but I but I do know that when I wrote that letter saying that there were white people in Mecca, it shook up a lot of Muslims because most of the Muslims who follow Mr. Muhammad absolutely believed that it was impossible, physically impossible, I should say divinely impossible, for a white person to go to Mecca. In 1964, Malcolm was projected as the dick devil figure in terms of, you know, uh, the liberation. You have to put into the context of the times. This is the height of the so-called Cold War. Propaganda, tremendous propaganda war between the Soviet Union and the United States. In 1964, when they had the UN debates on the Congo, two African diplomats, for the first time in history, when they were making, making up speeches, they say if the United States has the right to intervene in the Congo, who's to say that we don't have the right to intervene to help to protect black people from what is happening in Mississippi? That was unheard of. Malcolm, do you intend to lead the charge uh, in the United Nations? Well, I, I find that to say you're going to lead something creates a lot of hostility, division, jealousy, and envy. Uh, I hope to, to work with any group of leaders or any group of organizations to do whatever is necessary to see if this problem is brought before the United Nations. At about 3.15 p.m. Uh, this afternoon, uh, there were about 400 persons present in the ballroom here representing an organization known as uh, the Afro-American Unity Organization, uh, headed up by Malcolm X. He sustained one shot uh, in the uh, lower right chin and the other six hit him in the uh, chest and uh, body. I saw people crawling on the floor. I saw, and so I got down too. Then when I was looking out, and I saw um, someone looking amazement to the front. I knew they had shot my husband. He raised his hand in uh, a Muslim greeting. Salaam Alaikum. At that point, uh, I, I heard a rumbling behind me, and I turned around in my seat to, to see what it was. Then we saw, like, I saw two guys standing up, and the next thing, Malcolm had his hand up. He had said, he said, stay cool, stay calm. Just then the gunfire went off, and his, his hand was up. I remember this. I turned around quickly, and the next thing I saw was Malcolm falling back in a dead faint. What did Malcolm X mean to you? 
It meant a great deal to me and my people. I'm sorry that a good man is gone. At the first I hear of it, I couldn't have cried anymore, I don't believe, if I had lost my mother. What did he mean to you? Can you tell me a bit more about it? He meant deliverance for my people. And I hope we all walk in the same footsteps as Malcolm X was walking in. You know what I mean? He stood out among all black people. Why That's he right showed the white man where was that? Why, why was he in He got respect. Why was he off at Princeton and all these big white universities? Because they respected him too, the way I respect him. Now, last year, like Roy Wilkins said, he changed. He wanted to get along with the white people. But you people didn't want to get along with us. Who do you believe is responsible for Malcolm X? The white death? power structure in America is behind it. They, and they, they're quick to capitalize on it by saying that uh, one of his old kind did it. But they put it up to do, be done. What do you mean, the white power structure? The white power structure of America. They know they had more to gain by getting Malcolm X out of the way than, than they had to buy and let him live. That's but, why I say. But what is the white power structure? Never mind. I just said the white power structure. You know the white race, don't you? Three members of the nation of Islam got locked up for Malcolm X's assassination, but there was always some questionable doubt of other agencies or government agencies. Since the death of Malcolm X, have you encountered any serious trouble or do you expect any serious trouble? I have not encountered any uh, serious trouble and I don't expect to in uh, uh, account with any serious trouble from Malcolm's death. Do you, uh... This death of Malcolm, uh, God himself had something to do with that. There's COINTELPRO documents in which the FBI takes credit for feeding the feud between Malcolm and the Nation of Islam. So I definitely think the United States government uh, takes responsibility. And unfortunately, I think the Nation of Islam takes responsibility because the killers came from within and the atmosphere created by leadership in the nation allowed that assassination to go forward. We are known for having the most peaceful meetings of any large group of people in America, and we intend to continue to have it. So now that everything is back to order, we shall proceed. When Malcolm was assassinated, he was trying to deal with capitalism as one big issue. How does capitalism affect black folks? Um, how does that economic system compare to other economic systems? Um, and even if we lived under a capitalistic system, remember here at one point he said uh, all capitalists were bloodsuckers. And at another point he said also that uh, his friends were socialists, communists, capitalists, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So I think he was still wrestling with knowing the kind of economic system that we live under and that everybody mostly lives under across the world. Malcolm was a real threat. And um, you know, regardless of what the particular details might be around his assassination, it was so clear that uh, the power structures uh, 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 did not want to see Malcolm and and all of those who identified with him continue in, in that um, um, path toward internationalism, uh, linking our struggles in the U.S. with struggles in Africa, with struggles in the Middle East, with struggles in Asia and, and, and Latin America. 
that was the real threat. Uh, and I think that uh, had Malcolm not been assassinated, uh, that he would have urged uh, many more people to uh, develop that kind of international um, perspective. You feel, however, that, uh, that we're making progress in, in this country no, and worldwide? No, no, no. I'm, I will never say that progress is being made. If you stick a knife in my back nine inches and pull it out six inches, there's no progress. If you pull it all the way out, that's not progress. The progress is healing the wound that the blow, that the blow me. If anything, that's what we've seen. The nine-inch knife has been, you know, slightly removed a little bit over the last few decades, and uh, or, or maybe I would argue adjusted in its place within our back. And what we have to do is not accept what we're being encouraged to accept as, as progress, um, as progress. We have to accept, we have to develop our own standard for what that would look like, and then if it doesn't reach that, we don't accept it as progress. There's a worldwide revolution going on. It goes beyond Mississippi. It goes beyond Alabama. It goes beyond Harlem. What is it revolting against? The power structure. The American power structure? No. The French power structure? No. The English power structure? No. Then what power structure? An international Western power structure. Okay, <clears throat> documentary by uh, the Real News Network produced in 2015, a sort of introduction, summary of the life of Malcolm X, especially towards the end of his career, the two years or so before he was murdered. And on that note, just this week, we had a new development. One of the undercover police uh, died, wrote a letter, and asked that it be read after his death. So his cousin read the letter, and the man confessed that he was an undercover agent, a black man, and he had been assigned on the day that Malcolm X was killed to arrest uh, Malcolm X, two of Malcolm X's bodyguards so that there would be no, m there would be much less of an effective guard for Malcolm. And uh, that was the day he was assassinated. Uh, you can get some more details on that in uh, Democracy Now! Amy Goodman's show. Just go to democracynow.org and... Uh, It'll be there as one of the featured stories. Uh, Malcolm X. So what does Malcolm X have to do with the labor movement? This show's about the labor movement, right? What are you talking about <laughs> Malcolm X for? Well, as you heard in that documentary, Malcolm X was changing from being totally bl a black nationalist, although he never stopped being a black nationalist, I don't think, 
to becoming an internationalist, to start thinking about the way that people all over the world were imprisoned in one power, by one power structure. And at one point he said, capitalists are bloodsuckers. So he was thinking. Some people say that he was moving towards socialism. I don't know if there's any evidence for that. But there certainly is evidence that he, his mindset was changing and he was approaching that kind of awareness. And uh, you, you have to imagine what someone who was that brilliant someone who was that um, militant, I guess, is a, is a word you could say, uh, what he would have done, what would have happened uh, if he had become, pre become uh, started preaching that kind of awareness. Okay, here we go with the Prophets of Rage. Run away, run away from the prophet of rage. Just take your life. 
factory is the subject of this song. We work and live our lives out here, so do not think it's wrong. In Washington, in Washington, in Washington, oh Lord, in Washington.
hurricane and it ripped the ceiling off a church and killed everyone inside. You turn on the telly and every other story is telling you somebody died. My sister killed a baby cause she couldn't afford to feed it. It was sending people to the moon. In September, my cousin tried reaper for the very first time. Now he's doing horse. It's June. And that was Prince, Prince singing about the disease, the epidemic, the epidemic before the epidemic of drugs in the community, in working class, in this case, black community. Before that, we had a traditional labor song in Washington by the Priority Singers. And prior to that, <clears throat> we had another Chuck D group, this one with uh, Tom Morello and other prominent rappers, uh, Fight the Power. So what I want to play now is Radio Labor. Every week we bring you news from all over the world about working people and their organizations and their struggles. So here we go. Solidarity News on Radio Labor. 
This is a Radio Label World Report recorded on Friday, February 26, 2021. I'm Mark Polanyi. In the report this week, a UK Supreme Court ruling against Uber could have effects in many other countries. Labor condemns the military coup in Myanmar, supporting unionists in Hong Kong during the crackdown by Beijing. The Labor Start report about union events and singing. This is Radio Labour. In the United Kingdom recently, the country's Supreme Court ruled on the employment status of Uber drivers. Uber argues that its drivers are independent contractors, not employees. The labour movement says that they are because of the rules and regulations they have to abide by. To find out how the ruling could affect workers in the UK, I talked to Ruan Subasinga. Mr. Subasinga is the legal director of the International Transport Workers Federation, the ITF. I asked him about the ruling of the UK court. This case basically centered on two drivers, uh, Yasin Aslam and James Farah, who are the lead claimants in this case, who took Uber to court on behalf of a group of 23 other drivers claiming that they are workers. And uh, worker status is the intermediary category between employee and the self-employed under English law. And worker status basically requires a contract for services and is still a form of self-employment, but one that guarantees fundamental workers' rights like the minimum wage, holiday pay, and protection against discrimination. And the workers won in the uh, Employment Tribunal, which is a court of first instance for employment claims in the UK, but of course Uber appealed and the Supreme Court uh, really represented the fourth and final time Uber could argue that their drivers are self-employed partners rather than workers. However, the unanimous decision of the Supreme Court was that it agreed with the Employment Tribunal, the Employment Appeal Tribunal and the Court of Appeal that drivers are workers rather than self-employed independent contractors. Now, again, I think it's important to highlight that this was a unanimous decision with no judges dissenting, and the fact that the Supreme Court reiterated the, um, the level of control Uber has over its drivers by uh, setting fares, by having the power to deactivate drivers who don't accept rides, by using the rating given to drivers to manage their performance, and so on. And... I think that a really important part of the judgment was that the Supreme Court basically guided lower courts to actually look at the working arrangements themselves as opposed to relying on contract language that would purport to classify drivers as independent contractors. And in doing this, they held that the purpose of employment protection legislation is precisely to protect workers who are paid too little for the work that they do, work, who work excessive hours, so on and so forth. And I think that this is particularly important when we you know, bear in mind the gig economy and the situation gig workers are placed in. And one final point, and I think this is also a critical one, is that the Supreme Court agreed with the Employment Tribunal that working time extends to periods when the drivers are logged into the Uber app and not only when they're carrying passengers. 
And this, of course, is huge if you consider the amount of time uh, drivers have to cruise uh, looking for passengers. So overall, uh, a pretty um, um, incredible ruling from the UK Supreme Court. Are there implications for workers in other countries? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I certainly say so. The crux of it is, is that the jurisprudence of UK courts, and especially the Supreme Court, are relied on by courts in, uh, in Commonwealth countries um, and beyond. We've already seen colleagues in Kenya, New Zealand, and South Africa highlighting their, uh, their eagerness to bring claims at the national level. And, of course, this UK Supreme Court decision does not sit in isolation. We also had the French Supreme Court rule that Uber drivers are employees last year. So we're really seeing a pendulum swing towards the protection of worker rights in the gig economy by courts of last instance in a number of countries. And this will also have a big impact on upcoming regulatory initiatives on the gig economy, for example, in the European Union. The timing couldn't be better. And yes, absolutely, this ruling will have major implications for workers in other countries. The international labor movement is condemning the actions of governments in Myanmar, where there has been a military coup, and Hong Kong, where the Beijing government is attacking democracy activists. The International Trade Union Confederation is calling on unionists to help build pressure on the two governments. The ITUC is the global body which represents national union centers, such as the Ghana Trade Union Congress and the AFL-CIO in the United States. The General Secretary of the ITUC UC is Sharon Burrow. Today we stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters in Myanmar, indeed all the people of Myanmar who fought so hard over so many decades for the journey to democracy, the right to elect their own government. Military rule is vicious, it's violent, it's oppressive, and we are seeing it one more time on the streets of Myanmar today. Protesters, workers, students being shot with bullets, unconscionable, and of course arrested and detained simply for exercising their fundamental right to freedom of assembly, freedom of association, and freedom of speech. The coup cannot stand. We cannot have a military leadership taking away the hopes and the dreams of people who just want democratic rights and freedoms. We call on governments, international institutions to do more, to make it clear to the military leadership they will not be recognised, that the elected government must be able to form a government. And indeed, we need to know that the military will not be able to do business target their enterprises. Every company must do the due diligence. Every government must look at withdrawing any support. No investment, no business with military and their enterprises. The leaders of this coup, it's all about power and their own greed. Let's stop it in their tracks. The situation in Hong Kong has become quite dangerous for all democracy activists, but especially for trade unionists. For example, the General Secretary of the Hong Kong Confederation of Trade Unions, Lee Chok Yan, has been arrested a number of times and faces long prison terms. Here again is Ms. Burrow. We're very proud of the democratic movements 
the union activists in Hong Kong, the courage, the tenacity of our trade unions who are in fact fighting for a future where democratic rights and freedom sit at the heart of the decent work and the freedoms to live their lives that people want. The oppression must end. Our brother Lee Chuk Young is facing nine charges and indeed other activists have been arrested for simply exercising their freedom of association, their right to freedom of speech and political protest. It must end. Today, take action. We're sending a message of love and solidarity to Lee and all the other brothers and sisters. We absolutely stand in awe of your courage. We stand with you and we will be there through the fight for a Hong Kong that respects democratic rights and freedoms. You can take action. Send a letter, take a photograph, send it as a postcard to Hong Kong. All the activities are on our website. Stand today in solidarity with our brothers and sisters in Hong Kong. They deserve every support we can give them. Solidarity. More information about the situations in Myanmar and Hong Kong can be found on the ITUC website at ituc-csi.org. Here with his report about union events is Labour Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Each day, Labour Start's volunteers collect hundreds of news items about the struggles of workers and their unions from around the world in 36 languages. Here's a small sample of all of their hard work. Our top stories section included links to coverage of the mind-boggling levels of wage theft in the garment industry around the world, McDonald's Restaurant's global secret surveillance program that targets labor activists, and this week's general strikes in Myanmar and South Africa. The emerging trend in our news coverage this week is the unveiling of trade union programs for a post-pandemic economic recovery. Underlying all the policy proposals unions are putting forward is the need for this recovery, unlike the one that followed the 2008 financial sector meltdown, to be worker-focused. Government policies for the 2009 recovery almost exclusively provided massive support for financial institutions and little for workers and their communities. An increasingly common component of the positions being taken by trade unions is a move to a four-day workweek. The Icelandic labor movement is already making progress on this front. Across Europe, unions are pressing the issue, and in some countries like Spain, it appears to be gaining some traction. The concept has appeared suddenly in our coverage of Latin American trade unions as well, and some labor-friendly non-governmental organizations in sub-Saharan Africa and in parts of Asia are proposing reduced work time as a way to support workers and at the same time promote an economic recovery based on consumption rather than subsidies to big business. For our Working Women pages, our volunteers found news of the expansion of the British Labour Movement's Domestic Abuse Workplace Champions Program, the struggle for equality being waged by Maori women nurses in New Zealand, plans for international Women's Day events from around the world, and why the mechanization of tea plantations in Kenya is hitting women workers harder than others. 
the free health and safety newswire we offer in cooperation with Hazards Magazine, carried stories about the problems with a Canadian investigation into migrant workers' living and working conditions during the pandemic, more police deaths in South Africa, and the guilty plea registered by the man accused in the murder of a Maltese journalist who was investigating political corruption. Our photo of the week is of a rally organized by trade unions in Iceland where the labor movement is pushing for a four-day workweek as part of a program for that country's economic recovery. Current campaigns that we are running at the request of unions around the world include an urgent appeal for online solidarity with platform-based gig workers in Israel. Look for details of this and other campaigns on our site. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is Union Nation with UNION. is a production of the International Association of Machinists, the IAM. And that's it. International Labor News you can And remember, as Blackadder always says, it's all about international solidarity. When we're united, we often win. When we're divided, we don't have a chance. Okay, let's talk a little bit now about Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Ferlinghetti was uh, a poet, a translator, uh, wrote art criticism, film narration, and essays. He was born in New York in 1919, and he died just last week at the age of 101. Attended uh, 
Columbia University, went to the Sorbonne in France and studied there. And in 1953, he founded the iconic bookstore in North Beach with Peter Martin, City Lights Bookstore, which it says here was the first all paper brown bookshop in the country. And by 1955, he launched City Lights Publishing House and one year later published probably the best-known poem of the 20th century in English, Howl by Allen Ginsberg. And Ferlinghetti and other people were arrested. Another one was uh, Lenore Candle's poem, uh, she she also was arrested. The trial drew attention from all over the country about the San Francisco r Renaissance. Writers like Ginsburg, Jack Kerouac, um, Gregory Corso, Robert Creeley, these were the beats. And... Uh, their sort of rallying point was rejection of the corporate culture that was just really developing in the 50s that uh, imposed on everybody this tremendous sense of, uh, of having to, well, having to <clears throat> be the same, to follow a certain way of life and anything outside that way of life was somehow weird. You had to give up. You had to give up your independence and your, and your uh, personal identity. You had to conform pressure to conform was tremendous. And of course it was happening in a small portion of the society. Um, white people mostly who were living, trying to live the middle class life and conform. And their <clears throat> main message was a critique of that way of life as you'll see in in uh, the poems we read by Ferlinghetti. Later on, uh, years later, this movement kind of developed into a proactive movement where people were actually trying to change the world and make it better and more human-based, uh, including, of course, you know, opposing wars, opposing segregation, opposing bias, opposing classism, all those things. All kinds of uh, movements had new births at that point. Anyway, here's Lawrence Ferlinghetti. One of the, he was always class with the beat poets, but always said that he was a working class poet, not a beat poet. The Coney Island of the Mind, 1958. Number one, 
In Goya's greatest scenes we seem to see the people of the world exactly at the moment when they first attain the title of suffering humanity. They writhe upon the page in a veritable rage of adversity, heaped up, groaning with babies and bayonets under cement skies, in an abstract landscape of blasted trees, bent statues, bat swings and beaks, slippery gibbets, cadavers and carnivorous cocks, and all the final hollering monsters of the imagination of disaster. They are so bloody real, it is as if they really still existed. And they do. Only the landscape is changed. They still arranged along the roads, plagued by legionnaires, false windmills, and demented roosters. They are the same people. We are the same people, only further from home. On freeways, fifty lanes wide, on a concrete continent spaced with bland billboards illustrating imbecile illusions of happiness. The scene shows fewer tumbrils, but more strung-out citizens in painted cars, and they have strange license plates and engines that devour America. Number nine, see, it was like this. When we waltz into this place, a couple of far-out cats is doing an Aztec two-step, and I says, Dad, let's cut. But then this dame comes up behind me, see, and says, you and me could really exist. Wow, I says, only the next day, she has bad teeth and really hates poetry. Number 20. The penny candy store beyond the elevated is where I first fell in love with unreality. Jelly beans glowed in the semi-gloom of that September afternoon. A cat upon the counter moved among the licorice sticks and Tootsie Rolls and Oh Boy Gum. Outside, the leaves were falling as they died. A wind had blown away the sun. A girl ran in. Her hair was rainy. Her breasts were breathless in the little room. Outside, the leaves were falling, and they cried, Too soon! Too soon. Okay, Ferlinghetti reading there. Um, let's look on our credos. There's a poem that we always read every week here. Pity the nation, Perlingetti writes, after Khalil Gibran. 
by Lawrence Ferlinghetti. One second. Pity the nation whose people are sheep and whose shepherds mislead them. Pity the nation whose leaders are liars, whose sages are silenced, and whose bigots haunt the airwaves. Pity the nation that raises not its voice except to praise conquerors, and acclaim the bully as hero and aims to rule the world by force and by torture. Pity the nation that knows no other language but its own and no other culture but its own. Pity the nation whose breath is money and sleeps the sleep of the too well-fed. Pity the nation, oh, Pity the people who allow their rights to erode and their freedoms to be washed away. My country tears of thee, sweet land of liberty. Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Okay, we asked earlier we're talking about the minimum wage, a lot of attention this week. What exactly is going on? Well, this is what's going on. Uh, Mr. Biden and his party, who hold a bare majority in the Senate and a more solid one, although not all that strong in the House, want to include a $15 minimum wage, federal minimum wage, in their COVID-19 relief bill. And someone called the Capitol, I guess someone who, who gives advice on how, on Senate rules, said that they can't include it uh, because it's something that'll affect the budget, I think. Not sure about that. Um, so now they're trying to figure out a way to get around that. Of course, all the Republicans are opposed to it. Mr. Romney and one other Republican senator proposed a raise to $10 an hour over a period of five years. $10 an hour. Let's say you work 40 hours a week and you get no days off except weekends. $10 an hour, that's $400 a week times 50 weeks. That's a little over $20,000 a year. Who can live on that? Some people could perhaps, but you can't raise a family on that can't feed your kids on that. So here's something from, like I was saying, the Labor Radio Podcast Network. 
And this is from Chris Garlock and his managing editor, Union City, director of the D.C. Labor Fest. And here's what he has to say about that. Welcome to Union City Radio for Monday, March 1st. Since 2009, the last time the minimum wage increased, the cost of living has increased 20%. Yet there's a debate in Congress about increasing the minimum wage nationally to $15 an hour. The people debating whether to give a raise to 17 million American workers are the 535 members of Congress. Their annual salary is $174,000 a year. Let's be generous and say they work 60 hours a week, 52 weeks a year. That works out to, let's see, $55.77 an hour. Now, I'm not saying that the members of Congress aren't worth $55.77 an hour, but I am suggesting that hotel housekeepers, food prep workers, and restaurant servers, just a few of the most common minimum wage jobs in America, do deserve a raise. And while inflation would peg that at $25 an hour, Still, less than half of what a member of Congress makes, $15, is a good place to start. In today's labor history, on this date in 1956, the federal minimum wage increased to a dollar an hour. Today's labor quote is by former Secretary of Labor Tom Perez, who said, If the opponents of an increase in the minimum wage were correct, then every time you fly to Seattle, you've got to bring a bagged lunch because there shouldn't be any restaurants because they should have all gone out of business as a result of raising the minimum wage. Union City Radio is supported by our friends at Union Plus. Find out more at unionplus.org. You can support Union City Radio by making a tax-deductible donation. Call 202-588-9739 or go to wpfwfm.org and click on Donate Now. This has been Chris Garlock. See you on the line. Because the union, what yeah, the union will make us strong. It will make us Okay, Chris Garlock with his union feature. $55 an hour is what the congressmen and senators make. And they don't want to raise your wage to 15 bucks an hour. Most likely they think they're very important as they are. Does that mean that you're not important? Hardly. Okay, labor COVID relief bill could save distressed union pensions. We're at the uh, Portside labor website. Congress is working on a lengthy bill for further COVID relief. One small portion of its model, it is modeled on the union-backed Butch Lewis Act, which passed the U.S. House in 2019 
but not the U.S. Senate. Butch Lewis would provide loans cash grants. The union sponsored multi-employee pension plans that are otherwise headed toward insolvency. Uh, I'm going to intervene here. I never could figure out how companies got to have power over union pension plans. Where did that come from? Maybe the fact that they have to collect the money for it? I don't know. About one in ten multi-employer pension plans are in that situation thanks to stock market losses and declining numbers of active employees in the plans and the well-being of up to 1.3 million union members and spouses is at stake. Butch Lewis would shore up declining pensions and restore benefits that were cut by some pensions in an effort to forestall insolvency. If Congress does nothing, the central state's Teamster pension is expected to run out of money in 2025. That would lead the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, PBGC, itself to become insolvent. PBGC is a government insurance agency that guarantees pension benefits. Butch Lewis' proposal was included in the COVID relief bill that passed the House Ways and Means Committee on February 11th by a vote of 25-18. That cleared it for a vote on the House floor. The final version of the next COVID-19 relief bill is expected to be voted in March. A standalone version, the Emergency Pension Plan Relief Act of 2021, was introduced January 21st by Representative Richard Neal, Democrat of Maryland, Chair of the House Ways and Means Committee. According to a summary of the bill, a troubled pension plan would receive enough financial assistance to keep it solvent and funded for 30 years with no cuts to the earned benefits of participants and beneficiaries. Plans that previously cut benefits would have to restore them to the retirees who earned them. In exchange, each plan would have to comply with certain conditions and report to PBGC. And there's a note here. It says the Butch Lewis Act would have re recovered plans via a loan, but the pension rescue in Section 8 of the House COVID relief bill takes the form of a cash grant, so it wouldn't have to be paid back. Funny, isn't it? <laughs> we need to bail out the pension plans because companies have not funded them. Okay, let's look at some labor history. February 25th, the Patterson strike begins. I'm Rick Smith, 
And this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1913. That was the day some 24,000 workers in Patterson, New Jersey, walked out of 300 silk mills and dye houses to demand the eight-hour day, better working conditions, and a return to the two-loom system. Mill owners attempted to introduce a reduction of the workforce by doubling the number of looms workers ran from two to four. Descendants of strikers recalled a 55-hour work week and children as young as nine working in the mills. The strike started in late January at Doherty Mills and soon spread to become a general strike. Leaders from the industrial workers of the world like Big Bill Haywood, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, and Carlo Tresca organized rallies, strike support, and food pantries for the silk workers. The police routinely attacked picket lines, and as many as 1,850 workers were arrested during the course of the strike. Socialists like John Reed put on a massive public pageant at New York City's Madison Square Garden that reenacted the strike to raise strike relief funds. 35,000 turned out to hear Upton Sinclair address the strikers. Having stockpiled surplus product, manufacturers were able to outlast workers who by July were practically starving. A main cause of the strike's failure was the introduction of labor-saving technology that served to reduce the need for highly skilled workers and drive down wages. The strike may have failed in many of its demands, but silk workers were able to beat back the implementation of the four-loom system for almost a decade. They would finally win the eight-hour day in 1919. Importantly, the strike succeeded in uniting male and female workers across ethnic and craft lines. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryintwo.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1941. That was the day the battle at Bethlehem began. 14,000 workers at Bethlehem Steel's Lackawanna Mill in Buffalo, New York, walked out on strike. The Steel Workers Organizing Committee, or SWAC, had been fighting to organize Little Steel for years. Little Steel was a general term that referred to the smaller mills like Republic, Inland, Bethlehem, and Youngstown Sheet and Tube. At Bethlehem, SWAC was still waiting for a decision from the U.S. Court of Appeals about the company union Bethlehem refused to give up in defiance of the Wagner Act. As a defense industry, Bethlehem had $1.5 billion worth of armament orders to fill. And yet, they wouldn't even pay the legal minimum wage mandated for government contracts. Retired steelworker Mitchell Schaefer recalled in a 1991 interview, I went to work there in the late 30s swinging a 20-pound sledgehammer to break iron billets. The 81-year-old continued by saying, I got 40 cents an hour, six days a week, no vacations. The last straw came when Bethlehem fired over a 1,000 workers. Bethlehem claimed these particular workers damaged Coke ovens when they engaged in a work stoppage. Workers immediately formed solid picket lines at seven gates that stretched two miles. 
they successfully beat back attempts by police to allow scabs to cross their picket line. After 38 hours, Bethlehem quickly agreed to reinstate the thousand workers. They soon resumed talks regarding wage increases, grievance procedures, and union recognition. But a month later, Bethlehem decided to go back on their promises. They started organizing elections for collective bargaining representatives through their company union. The stage was set for the next big strike at Bethlehem in March that would finally win union recognition. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1937. That was the day with whistles blowing, the call to strike could be heard through the aisles of Woolworth in downtown Detroit. 108 saleswomen walked away from their workstations and cash registers. The eight-day sit-down had begun. The women saw from the experience in Flint that sit-down strikes were effective. They evicted management, barricaded the doors, and found 200 or so customers still inside the store wanting to join them. The strikers issued their demands. A 10 cent an hour raise, an eight hour workday, union recognition and a union hiring hall, free uniforms and laundering, and more. Kresge department stores immediately gave their workers a raise in order to prevent similar stoppages. The striking women at Woolworth made themselves comfortable and the sit-down soon spread to a second store. Leaders from local 705 of the Hotel Employees and Restaurant Employees Union threatened a nationwide strike if demands were not met. Union cooks provided meals and union musicians provided entertainment. Hotel workers from across the city picketed in front of the store in a show of solidarity. After seven days, Woolworth's management caved and agreed to most of the strikers' demands. High turnover in the workforce would undo contract gains at area Woolworth stores soon after the sit-down. But the victory electrified retail workers across the country. The sit-down spread to retailers in St. Louis, New York, San Francisco, Minnesota, and Washington. In three strikes, miners, musicians, sales girls, and the fighting spirit of labor's last century, Dana Frank notes that, quote, over 60 years later, unions today in department stores all over the country owe their existence in part to the Woolworth strike. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. That was our Labor History in Two feature. The, uh, Woolworth strike, the Patterson strike, and the strike at bloody strike at Bethlehem Steel in 1941. Remember, you're only alone when you don't stand up. It's about time for us to get out of here and hand you off to Scott O. Walker, Mr. Flat Black Plastic, on mutinyradio.fm come on down to mutiny radio at 2781 21st street we got radio we got comedy we got video we got art installations come on down and find your voice mutiny radio 2781 21st street It's about time for us to get out of here, and as usual, it's been a pleasure spending the morning with you. Hope you have a good week. 
and good work. Remember, one person gets a dollar they didn't work for. Someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. You don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table, that is, where you work. You're on the menu. And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. It's only a waste of time. Thanks again, everybody. Remember, stay strong. It's the only game in town. We set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> As the world gets wackier and less predictable in every way, it is more important than ever for us to all remember our roots. We wouldn't be here today if our ancestors hadn't had the capacity and the skills to take care of themselves and their communities using the resources in the natural world around them and their own two hands. My name is Wonia Thibault of Buckskin Revolution and Alone Season 6, and I started Buckskin Revolution not just to empower people with a wider range of skills to meet their basic needs, but also to inspire them with a sense of fulfillment and connection that comes with living a little closer to the earth and using our bodies, our minds, and our very DNA for what they evolved to do to help us thrive without the need for modern technology and industry. If that sounds appealing to you, I hope you'll join me for the Fall 2020 Buckskin Revolution Online Skills Gathering, an eight-week learning experience designed to work within any schedule. It involves pre-recorded classes, live interactive sessions, and online community learning support from both myself and your fellow students. The need for these skills has never been more pressing, and Buckskin Revolution is working hard to bring them to you. I hope you can join us. Get connected with yourself and the world around you at buckskinrevolution.com. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience, like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to Joke Workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. <laughs>
Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! <laughs> I'm Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. Join us every Sunday, 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on mutinyradio.fm for... Let's watch a full-length movie on... YouTube. We watch the best movies that... uh, Aren't they good? Well, they're chosen... Uh, Here's his theme song again. Bye. We might watch a full-length movie on YouTube San Francisco, what are you doing this week? Come join Mutiny Radio Presents for four different comedy shows supporting local businesses in the Mission District and beyond. On Sunday, join us in the Tenderloin at Resolute Wine Bar, 678 Geary, for Barrel of Laughs at Resolute, an amazing comedy show with the best wines curated by Resolute. On Wednesdays, join us at Asiento. At and 21st and Bryant for dinner and a show at Asiento. Delicious tapas, incredible drinks, hilarious comedy Wednesday nights at 7.30. On Fridays at 7 o'clock, join us outside mutinyradio.fm here at 21st and Florida, 7 o'clock for outdoor comedy, socially distanced in the street. And Saturdays, join us at Atlas Cafe SF at 20th in Alabama for Titans of Comedy every Saturday at 2 o'clock. Hey, keep supporting local businesses and comedy here in San Francisco with your friends at Mutiny Radio. St. Valentine's Day Mascara streaming live on Facebook Sunday, February 14th 11 a.m. An International Affair hosted by Ms. Noir. Do you crave a carnal Are you longing for some lecherous lines? Is it seduction from a sultry sonnet that you're seeking? Or would you rather be ravished by a woman and drive? Care to venture a little voyeuristic versification with this lyrical libertine? Or could this haunting words meant maybe with an appetite to an allegorical adultery? Why not slake your literary lustings in a personal one-on-one? St. Valentine's Day Mascara. St. Valentine's Day Mascara. St. Valentine's Day Mascara. 14th of February 2021. 11 a.m. PST. Facebook Live. A date for everyone. Hosted by Ms. Noir. 
The Ministry of Lava manages our national lava resources to ensure that we will always have a steady supply of lava to operate the nation's active volcanoes, which in turn power our cities and methamphetamine labs. As a matter of national security, we need to reduce our dependence on foreign lava, which means an expansion of domestic lava drilling. As your chancellor, I will build lava wells all over the country, as well as secure access to more lava fields by invading Hawaii. Imagine orange gold spurting out from school playgrounds on the Great Plains and illuminating the Nebraska sky like fireworks on the 4th of July. Magma oozing over the rolling hills of Kentucky. Volcanic ash settling gently over homes in New England like fresh gray snow. Global lava markets to continue to be dominated by terriblest regimes like Iceland, Chile, and the Philippines. Vote for my opponent, who sits in their back pocket as comfortably as Pahoehoe on the slopes of Kilauea. If you want the United States to stay competitive in the era of peak lava and beyond, then take a chance on the Chancellor. Looking for local handcrafted leather goods? Look no further than Skin on Skins, a local mission a leather working shop. All original pieces handcrafted for you. Jackets, belts, purses, jewelry, everything made out of leather. You need your bicycle seat fixed? You want it in cool leather? Under can do it. You have a motorcycle that you want to fit out with side bags and cool stuff talk to under go to skinonskins.com that's s-k-i-n-o-n-s-k-i-n-s.com you just went to Folsom Street Fair and you don't have enough leather go see under everything is handcrafted and understated quality fine leather handcrafted goods for all of your needs he also does fixes maybe you love that jacket he'll put the zipper back in Talk to Under at SkinOnSkins.com at 20th and Mission. Check them out at SkinOnSkins.com. L-S-D, fap, acid and fapping, fapping and acid, acid, fapping, fapping and acid, fap, 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 acid. Thank you. That song is called Acid and Fapping. What is flat black plastic what could it be it's exactly what you think it is flat black plastic vinyl records round played mixed all for you every Saturday from noon to two by Scotto Walker Amazing artist. <laughs> 